scripture passages taken from um, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. And I'll begin uh, with verse 5. Your faith then does not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Yet I do proclaim a message of wisdom to those who are spiritually mature. But it is not the wisdom that belongs to this world or to the powers that rule this world, powers that are losing their power. The wisdom I proclaim is God's secret wisdom, which is hidden from humankind, but which he had already chosen for our glory even before the world was made. None of the rulers of this world knew this wisdom. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as the scripture says, what no one ever saw or heard, what no one ever thought could happen, is the very thing God prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God made known his secret by means of his spirit. The spirit searches everything, even the hidden depths of God's purposes. It is only a person's own spirit within him that knows all about him. In the same way, only God's spirit knows all about God. We have not received this world's spirit. Instead, we have received the spirit sent by God so that we may know all that God has given us. So then, we do not speak in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit as we explain spiritual truths to those who have the Spirit. Whoever does not have the Spirit cannot receive the gifts that come from God's Spirit. Such a person really does not understand them. They are nonsense to him because their value can be judged only on a spiritual basis. Whoever has the Spirit however, is able to judge the value of everything. But no one is able to judge him. As the scripture says, who knows the mind of the Lord, who is able to give him advice? We, however, have the mind of Christ. All right, thank you, Hugo, for that reading. Uh, I want to, uh, to let you know, sort of in, uh, in full disclosure, I'm taking, a, uh, in my master's program right now, I'm taking a preaching class. And so I've had to uh, submit my manuscripts to the professor already, and uh, I have to evaluate myself and participate in my evaluation by other people. So if any of you are itching to evaluate me, 
Um, I have some extra evaluation forms on the end of my pew, so feel free to, to grab those before or after. Uh, the story that we are, or the, the passage that we're looking at today comes from uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, it fits very much within the uh, theme uh, that we were starting last week, the foolishness, of the, uh, t- foolishness to the world, uh, that the cross looks like foolishness, but it is, it is wisdom and it is life-giving for us. So today is uh, September 16th, and all of a sudden, it feels a lot closer to Christmas than it did last week. It's, it's hard to imagine. Uh, we have friends and relatives in, in places that don't seem like they should be that much warmer than us, but it is still plus 20 in Ontario. It is still warmer in a lot of places. Uh, and so we've had uh, communication all week from people in other uh, places bragging about their warmth, Uh, visitors who are leaving Alberta and then dreading coming back to this barren wasteland because it's so close to Christmas, it it almost feels. Um, But I had a look at the calendar, and there are only 14 more Sundays until Christmas, so you can begin your preparations now. Now, one of the the best uh, and sometimes worst parts of, of gathering for Christmas uh, is the, the joys and the responsibilities of hosting guests. There are, of course, family who uh, come and stay for too long. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it can go very well. Uh, the conversations around the table can be about catching up, about celebrating each other's uh, victories, uh, congratulating each other on achievements, uh, passages of time, uh, landmarks, and relationships. But sometimes that conversation is a kind of a minefield. You know, you're not supposed to talk about that relationship problem. You're not supposed to talk about this business failure. You're not supposed to uh, talk about uh, certain incidents and definitely avoid politics at all costs. This is how some of our Christmas dinner gatherings go. Uh, A few years ago, we had... Uh, guests come to visit us, and they were relatively civil, uh, but the the gentleman in the family, while he was with us, he spent all of the free time that he had, which uh, during that entire week uh, was was quite a bit of time, Uh, he spent that whole time playing video games. And that was fine, he shared, he took turns, he uh, he didn't hog it, he didn't have the volume too loud, but that's, that's all that he did. Um, and uh, he was playing Mario Kart. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys have, have played this on, on the Wii. Uh, but we, we have Mario Kart at home, and he played it a lot, and he got good at it. But not the kind of good that I wanted him. He had a different understanding of He played with different tactics and strategies uh, than I did and that I thought a decent person should. Um, I'm over-evaluating. It's, it's a video game after all. Um, but in Mario Kart, there's a, there's a special part of the game that as, as the, the cars are going around the track, uh, from time to time it gives you prizes. And it gives you prizes based on how well you are doing, uh, but in reverse. So if you're doing really well, it doesn't give you much because you're doing really well. But if you're in the back, it'll give you really good prizes 
uh, prizes that'll help you drive faster or, or knock out your enemy or your opponents, whatever. Um, and then it helps you to catch up with the rest of the pack. Um, but what this guy would do is he would drive slowly on purpose for the first little while, collect a really good prize, and then catch up to everybody else with his natural ability, and then use the prize and pass people. Uh, this was sort of against the rules, uh, against, you know, my unwritten rules, anyway. Now, uh, in Mario Kart, and you kind of, can kind of see it, this is the best picture that I could find handily, um, one of those prizes that Mario Kart gives is a blue shell. Uh, so that when you get it, it launches up in the air and, and automatically by itself flies to the front of the pack and it hits the person in first place and they wipe out and they lose all their prizes and they stop going and everybody uh, either catches up to them or passes them. And if you're the one who launched it, it's great. That means that you're that much closer to first place. If you're one of the other drivers, it's also great because you are also catching up. If you're watching, which sometimes it's a fun game to watch, it's awesome to watch because then this guy who is riding high is all of a sudden mad at everybody. It's a lot of fun. But if you are the, the driver in first place, the blue shell really sucks. <clears throat> when, uh, when you get hit by the blue shell, it is unbearable for you that you're being punished even though you were the strong one, the smart one, the fast one. Uh, <clears throat> but this, uh, <clears throat> this temporary Christmas guest that I would have would pick up the blue shell while he's way back pass a whole bunch of people, and then he would use it to make an easy pass. Uh, and it seemed like cheating to me. Uh, but it seems, this seems to me like a good parallel of human history. Human history is full of blue shells being launched at the people in first place. And every now and then we hear rumors and suggestions that a, that a revolt is, is happening, that there's going to be some sort of uh, uprising and then there's going to be a blue shell that comes up from the common people. And some people will love it, and there are going to be a few people who get hit by it, and they, of course, will hate it. Now, when, when we read through the Bible, the Old Testament is full of passages about exactly this kind of thing. The Old Testament prophets loved to talk about kings coming down from their thrones. Jesus does a little bit of this, too, in his, in his teachings. Uh, his mother Mary does, does this pretty prominently in, in her big uh, prayer that she does. Uh, the book of Revelation, which Hugo used for the uh, introduction this morning, does a lot of talk of that, of people coming down from their thrones, the ones powerful. But Paul, who, who writes a lot of the letters here, uh, doesn't do a lot of this. And so in, uh, in this passage... Uh, Paul kind of deviates a little bit. Normally he sticks to ethics and theology and church, church governance. And so when he makes this little comment in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 6, uh, then it seems like it's out of character. Uh, so Paul has been talking about how uh, Jesus' crucifixion is inconsistent with the world's understanding of wisdom uh, he's talking about how this is foolishness to the world. 
It's a stumbling block for everyone else. And so when we, when we think of a, a Messiah, a chosen spiritual leader, someone sent by God to rescue people, a lot of times even to us that makes sense that this would be a strong, victorious person. This person would, would oversee military victories, would bring about deliverance. And so for this person to die, to die a crucifixion death, uh, seems odd and uh, intimidating um, to, to kind of wrap your mind around this. How, how does this even work? And so this is something that Paul says is, is a weird idea from, from silly preachers like him and uh, something that makes sense to foolish people like us. Now, uh, it is not the people who are uh, who are lifted up, who understand this. It's not the strong who are able to understand this. It is, only, it is only the weak. Because the leaders, the powerful people, they are, uh, as this it says in the Common English Bible, they are being reduced to nothing. Other translations will say that they are doomed. They are doomed to fail. And there isn't really a lot of uh, context and explanation here would be helpful if Paul would have filled us in here. Um, and it would be good to know what the, what the first audience in Cor- Corinth was, was thinking. Now, were they thinking of, of local leaders, the, the people who were administrating just the, the city of, of Corinth? Uh, were they thinking uh, more of the sort of regional, state, provincial type leaders? Uh, were they thinking heaven forbid, of the larger Roman empirical system? Was, was that even possible? Was that even something that they could dream of? Now, maybe there was a, a specific scandal that, that had happened. And so everyone in the audience was thinking, oh, yeah, that thing that they did, that war that they started, that trade that they made. And, and we could do this, too. Uh, we could do this anytime we wanted with any politi- politician we wanted. We could think, oh yeah, that last scandal, that'll probably finish them off. And there seems to be something about the political process, uh, whether it's ours or, or the, the different one that's, that's happening here in, in Corinth, uh, <clears throat> that it, it makes the common people want to hear scandals. And so the media loves to tell us because we love to hear it. Everything becomes a scandal, whether it should be or not. Uh, it could also be that the government leadership group was uh, sort of divided. Were there factions within the, within the leadership? Was one of them going to take over? Was there infighting that was destabilizing their leadership? All of these could, could bring about the end of, of a government. So maybe this is what Paul means when they're being reduced to nothing. Now, it could also be that Paul was making fun of the whole process. Uh, leaders at that time liked to think that they were sort of amateur philosophers, uh, and so maybe he's kind of poking fun at, at how wise they, they think they are. And just like now, uh, those leaders would surround themselves with yes-men, people who would just automatically agree. And when that happens, then you're not making the right critical decisions, and so inevitably you're going to make bad decisions, and then failure comes soon after that. 
Or maybe just like in Mario Kart, there's something about being in first place, being in power, that invites the scorn of everybody else, and it makes you a target. So maybe this is what Paul is, is talking about. It would, it would be nice to know what these people thought of, of their leaders. Now, from the, from the history books, we get the sense that people looked at their leaders very similar to the way that we do. Um, how uh, some people loved their leaders, thought they made good decisions, how they were responsibly uh, just making decisions about money and trade and immigration. Uh, some of them hated and distrusted their leaders. There was nothing their leaders could do right. And so they would speak up as much as they were legally able to do. Now, probably most people were somewhere in the middle. They weren't crazy about the decisions, uh, but they also weren't going to risk their necks by, by complaining about it. It's always, it's always been risky at some level to speak against the people in power. Most of us would rather not do that. But some people seem to be hardwired for this kind of rebellion. Uh, now, I, I grew up shy and quiet, uh, politically disengaged, uh, and pretty eager to avoid conflict. So when I would find people who would speak boldly against the government, against teachers in the school, against any kind of authority, I really didn't know what to do with these people. What, what gave them that boldness? What, what had set them against authority uh, that strongly? And so when we, when we meet people like this, we always ask, are these people heroic? Are they foolish? Are these the kind of people that we uh, want to have their, their picture on our newspapers, that we want invited to our universities? Uh, are these the people that we want endorsing our running shoes? Or should they be ignored and forgotten? Are they ahead of their time? Or are they disconnected from reality? And it's, it's sometimes a fine balance. Uh, just as a, as a lighter example of this, uh, I remember when I was in high school, I uh, sort of saw myself on the, on the fringes of, of popularity. And uh, so I was always extra attentive to fashion trends. Uh, and my sisters would sometimes remind me in the morning, I would come up the stairs ready to eat breakfast and get ready and they would say, are you wearing that to school? Uh, and then I would go back down and try to find something that would, would please them a little more. <clears throat> but I remember, especially with, with pants, maybe you guys uh, know the rules now, maybe you pay different attention. Uh, <clears throat> but in our family, uh, when you kind of had to stretch money a little bit, mom would usually buy us pants that didn't fit right away, but we would grow into them. And if they're a little bit too wide at the top, you wear a belt. And if they're a little bit too long at the bottom, you roll them up. No big deal. Except you couldn't roll your pants up. It was against, that's not what people did socially. So obviously you had to, so you would tuck them up inside. You would roll them up. Nobody would notice. Then all of a sudden the, the trend changed. Then you were allowed to roll your pants up on the outside but at least twice. You couldn't do it once because then everybody would see the little bottom seam and it was, it was obvious that you weren't cool following the, the trends. So I could make that adjustment, no problem. My dad <clears throat> didn't seem to care about the rules 
And he would always, whether he's working in the garden, whether he's running errands in town, visiting friends, whatever, he would roll his pants up once, just one fold, seam visible to the whole world. And whatever, uh, that's just my dad. Uh, I was kind of embarrassed, but no big deal. It didn't impact things at school. Well, then all of a sudden, as quickly as things had changed uh, from inside to outside, they changed from two rolls to one. And all of a sudden, you were allowed to fold your pants one time. In fact, that was sort of expected. And now, I could make the change easily enough, but my dad, he didn't have to change anything. Now, all of a sudden, my dad was cool. He had been cool all along. Now, imagine somewhere along the line, a, a fashion reporter had, had seen this, had been observing this, this change happen, and they had interviewed my dad. That's a hypothetical situation. But imagine they had asked him, wow, what, what gave you the boldness and, and the conviction to, to wear your pants like that, even while the trend was something else? Well, what would my father have said? He would have been utterly confused by the whole process, right? He, that's not what he was thinking about at all. <clears throat> you know, he, uh, he wasn't embarrassed. He didn't, he didn't care one way or another. He wasn't focused on clothing decisions. Um, but he simply had the confidence to wear what he wanted to wear because it was comfortable, practical, it made sense. Now, I know someday uh, my kids will be embarrassed about my clothing choices. Uh, just this morning, I invited Felicity to pick my tie for me. Uh, and she said, Daddy, some of your ties are pretty girly. Um, so, uh, it has begun already. Uh, in, in Paul's uh, letter here, he, he breaks society down into kind of two groups of, of people. Um, so we'll uh, look a little bit in verses uh, 14 and 15. Uh, Paul kind of breaks this down. And um, this is one of those passages that gets translated differently because uh, it doesn't kind of naturally get communicated into English. Uh, Paul uses two terms here in Greek, the pneumaticon and the psychicon. Now, they sound like transformers, um, but the last part of the word is uh, icon, uh, which in, in Greek means person. We, we use that word uh, in some forms in, in our vocabulary as well. Uh, but, but what Paul is talking about is a pneuma person and a psyche person. In verse 15, Paul says that there are uh, spiritual people, uh, and here he's using this word pneuma, Tikon, pneuma icon, a person of the spirit. Uh, spirit people comprehend spiritual things, but they themselves are not understood by everyone. Spirit people understand spiritual things, they are motivated by spiritual things, and so because of that, they're not understood by everybody else. And so it isn't intelligence. Uh, it isn't conviction that helps a spiritual person to understand that Jesus' death is a, is a show of power. Um, but this little comment here uh, shows that it becomes possible by becoming a spirit person. It is, 
It is just a matter of becoming that kind of person. It's not intelligence. It's not conviction. It's not training. It's just becoming a spirit person, a pneumaticon. Uh, But in contrast, if we go back to verse 14, this is where Paul is talking about unspiritual people. Uh, So this is the common English. It says an unspiritual person. Uh, Other translations might say uh, a natural person. Uh, and so, natural person seems, seems a little bit odd, but it's a person who is pursuing their natural inclinations. This is the psychicon, a person who's following the desires of their own psyche, their own self. And so, if you are motivated by self-preservation, if you're motivated by your own safety and security, that is all that you will be able to understand. And so those who are unspiritual, the natural person, does not receive the gifts of God's Spirit because they don't understand them, they don't want them. So Paul is making a clear contrast between these two. If you only think about what your body wants, about what your body, what your psyche, what your ego wants and needs then you will only understand the things that make sense to the body. If you're only focused on power, on what you can do to hold on to and grow your power and influence, then you will only understand power. But if you want to understand spiritual things, well, then you need to focus on the spirit. Now, I think it's important to note here that this is not out of reach, that Paul is not putting this as something that is beyond us. Um, If you read the rest of 1 and 2 Corinthians, you realize pretty quickly that the church in Corinth was pretty messed up. Uh, The church was full of all sorts of social problems. They had class division. They had uh, separation of of factions between people who liked one uh, kind of leader or a different one. There was general bickering within the congregation. There was uh, some form of sexual indulgences that Paul has to kind of warn them against. But despite all of this, despite all of these problems within the church, the the weaknesses that Paul later addresses, still at at the end of chapter 2, in verse 16 here, he says, we have the mind of Christ. Right? We are spirit people. When we make ourselves the pneumaticon, then we can understand Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And so this isn't just Paul saying, I have achieved this. The rest of you have to work on it. Paul is saying, all of us, I, Paul, the writer, you Christians in Corinth, all of us who will later read this, If we are on the journey to understand the Spirit, if we are seeking to become pneumaticons, people of the Spirit, then we, all of us, this is is plural, this is first-person plural, we are all part of this, no matter how screwed up we are. We have the mind of Christ. This is us. So if it is so easy and and accessible then what are the impediments? Um, In verses 7 and 8, Paul sort of talks about 
some of the impediments that blocked the leaders from, from understanding this. Uh, so in, um, in verse 8, Paul is talking about how the leaders, the present-day rulers, weren't able to understand this. And we, when we put this together with, with the psychicon pneumaticon dichotomy, it's clear that these, latter, these, these leaders here are the psychicon. They are thinking about themselves. They're thinking about their own power and they can, how they can hold on to it. How is it possible that people who uh, are in charge, who want to make good decisions, could crucify Jesus? Well, Pilate, he wanted to appease the crowd. Uh, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leaders at the time, they wanted civility. They wanted piety. The arresting officers, they just wanted to keep their jobs. The crowd had been stirred up. They wanted blood. They were all the psychicon. They wanted what the body wanted and not what the spirit wanted. So Paul explains that it is obvious that these leaders of their time couldn't have understood the divine wisdom of the gospel, or else how could they have killed Jesus? They were so focused on their own glory that they were willing to kill Jesus, who Paul calls the Lord of glory. But the whole time, God's wisdom was kept secret from them, from the leaders. It was a secret plan that God had been using the whole time. It was visible to some, but not to the leaders. And so while the, while the powers were plotting against us as humanity, making plans to elevate their own glory and take glory away from other people, take Jesus' glory away, God had a plan in place for our glory. Paul uses glory here in two consecutive verses to highlight this fact. God had a plan for our glory. The powers had a plan for theirs. But God's plan involves lifting up everybody. But the powers, the leaders, the rulers, influenced by, by their own greed and selfishness, their plan is to keep everyone down and lift only themselves up. Jesus had a different plan. Jesus sets aside his own power and his own privilege to give glory to the rest of us. In Mario Kart, as soon as the blue shell is coming, the driver in first place knows. His screen changes, the controller changes, starts vibrating, the music changes, the, the driver might speed up to get as far as possible uh, so that she can avoid the, the thing as long as possible and get farther into the race. Uh, they might start driving erratically so that uh, when the explosion happens, somebody else will be caught up in the carnage. But whatever it is, everything that the driver does is in response to that coming blue shell. And I believe that this is symbolic of the period of history that we are in. Paul says that the leaders are being reduced to nothing. Because Paul knows that the blue shell is coming. Jesus is the blue shell. Now, there's a lot about our day that we don't understand. There's a lot of the, the thinking of our day 
uh, that we just take for granted. Now, not so long ago, we as mainstream society didn't know that women should be able to vote. Now it would be foolish to try to stop them. We didn't know that a person from one ethnic group could fall in love with and marry someone from another ethnic group. But now, for us to think otherwise would be ridiculous. We didn't know that slavery was wrong. But now we would think it was unacceptable if anyone tried to do that within our context. We didn't know, but the true wisdom was kept hidden, not because uh, it wasn't there, because nobody was telling us, we just weren't ready to hear it. But the victims were telling us. Women were speaking up and saying they deserved a voice in the process. We were seeing interracial couples falling in love all the time. The slaves told us about how their humanity was being suppressed and denied. And yet, we in mainstream society couldn't hear that. It was hidden from us, even though the voices were being raised. So how is it that these present powers will be defeated? What will that blue shell look like? Will it be some sort of divine punishment from above? Will it be the arrival of new and better political options? Will it be a growing competition within the political scene, within the global uh, political uh, world? Will it be a massive uprising of common people? Could be any of these things. It could be any combination of these things. And the how isn't terribly important, but we want to focus on the why. The powers are leaning on an old and antiquated system. True power doesn't come from earthly thrones anymore. True power comes from the true king. True wisdom comes from the true king. When we tie ourselves to earthly power, we cannot see the mystery that is Jesus. True power doesn't come from the people who hold the keys to the storehouses of food and wealth. True power comes from giving that food and wealth away. True power doesn't come from locking up criminals and torturing enemies. True power comes from releasing captives and loving enemies. It is the God of this, mis of this mystery that we are called to worship. And it is that crucified and humbled Messiah to whom we are being called to give our allegiance. And so when we look around us in the present, we aren't able to see God working all the time. But when we look back into the past, that is when we can see God's hand leading us and guiding us to this point. The wisdom and the power of this age seem dominant just like the power of the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire and all of the world empires before that seemed. But this time, this age, this present power, present wisdom, all of it will pass away and all that will remain is the wisdom and power of God. Amen.